Thank you, Kim. We appreciate you very much. I, I can't help it. I just love piano music. It just There's something about the piano that helps prepare our heart for worship. And I'd like to welcome you all to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Of course, you knew it because you could read the sign and you know where you're going. Um, it's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. We're here to worship, to fellowship, to support one another. And, yeah, I just better stop with that. Let me look at the announcements here. In your bulletin, we have some special things coming up. Fall Fellowship at the Nelsons, October 21st. On a personal note, uh, Gail's surgery is this Thursday. Uh, they moved it up four weeks, and she is so excited not to have surgery. I mean, what woman would want surgery? But to come out to your guys' place. So if my wife can get excited and RSVP to go to the Nelson's Fall Fellowship, you guys can too. You don't have an excuse. So um, if you haven't been there, it's a blessed time to, to see Blake in a, not wearing a suit, but having a piano, uh, not a piano, a banjo, uh, to the good food, the fellowship. To, you just see people in a different light. Um, I don't change. I go out there, I'm wearing blue jeans, but I'm still goofy. But um, There will be a ladies' Bible study tomorrow night at the cottage. Barbara Challies is, is there, um, going to be leading it. And, yeah, welcome the new members. You know Angela Sewell and Jesse and Brent Cochran. I don't didn't see the Cochrans yet, but there's Angie from Idaho. I went to college in Idaho. I love Idaho. I'd move back to Idaho in a second. Um, and also, in the bulletin, you guys can read, but you need to take note of the schedule of our meals coming up because it's a little different, um, but you can do that. So let me read scripture as we start. This is Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. Luke chapter 9, 51. This is familiar to you. This is the word of the Lord. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. 
But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to be your children, that you have brought us together in this assembly to worship you today. For you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of every aspect of our lives, from our heads down to our toes. You are God, God of the universe, and we are here to proclaim our love for you. I ask that you would help us to cast our cares aside for this hour, that you would fill our hearts, that you would open our hearts to hear your word preached. Watch over Paul as he brings the message. And would you give him complete freedom to share what you've laid on his heart? We ask that you would watch over Pastor and his extended family as they're on vacation. Help them to worship you and to build strong bonds with each other. Please give Kim complete freedom and confidence to help us worship through song. And we ask that your name would be glorified throughout the earth. Start here today with us. Amen. One other announcement for you husbands, today is National Wife Appreciation Day, so you've been, been warned. <laughs> Psalm 2410 says, He is the King of Glory. Let's take our hymn books and stand this morning and turn to number 336. Come thou almighty King, help us thy name to sing, help us to praise. 336.
109. Let's turn to 105. 105. Grace greater than our sin. Romans 5.20 says, When sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Number 56, immortal, invisible, God only wise. First Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, be honor and glory forever. Number 56.
may be seated. Good morning, church. What a beautiful day to read the scriptures. Today we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. That's found on page 926 on the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Let us read the word of God. Now, when they had passed through Amphilopius and Alponia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Bria. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came up there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful Sunday that you've given to us to worship you, to learn more about you, Lord. Thank you for the many prophets that you've sent before us as Paul and Silas and the many others that have spread your word, Lord. Even when the, the people of Thessalonica sent mobs and crowds against them, you protected them and they, were, they spread your word, Lord. Help us to be like them, to never fear a mob, Lord, and to turn the world upside down as they exclaimed, for the world is sinful, but your word is truth, Lord. Help us to glorify you in all we do and bless the offering, Lord, that it may go out and do your bidding and bring peace to the world. They may learn about your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
please stand once more and take your hymn books and turn to number 260. 260. Precious Lamb of Glory, Love's Most Wondrous Story, Heart of God's Redemption of Man, Worship the Lamb of Glory. 260, Lamb of Glory. morning. Now, if you were to go back into a uh, 20th century classroom and walk into Cornelius Van Til's uh, apologetics classroom at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, the chalkboard there uh, would probably look like a chaotic mess of, full of scribbles and some of his pet theo- uh, philosophical terms like contingency written on the board. But in all that mess, that chalkboard would also very likely have a, a very simple sketch of two circles that represent the, the Christian view of the universe. A big circle for, on top for our creator God, and a small circle to represent all of creation. Now, if you're not a Christian, uh, then you have this fatal flaw of being stuck with just this one circle in your worldview. Uh, If you're secular, then this one circle is all you have. No purpose or transcendent meaning. And uh, just a random and indifferent universe. And pagans, too, are uh, actually stuck in that same one-circle system. 
Romans says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. That's probably why we uh, are seeing a, a huge trend online, especially with young people, uh, doing something called manifesting. If you've uh, heard of that, uh, this manifesting is very similar to the word faith movement where you ask for stuff, but they just write a letter to the universe instead of praying to God. Maybe like, just uh, if you just say, uh, search manifesting on YouTube, they'll say, oh, just write a letter to the universe three times a day. They serve created things rather than the creator. Um, similarly, this last Tuesday, uh, Apple released a, a video that, uh, it already has a billion views on YouTube. And uh, in the video, Mother Earth incarnates as a woman and goes to the Apple headquarters and the Apple executives uh, reverently uh, scramble to appease Mother Earth with a report of the company's green initiatives. And it really makes you uh, wonder just how much of that is a metaphor for uh, Mother Earth and how much is just simple paganism. And, and actually, the, the pagans of the ancient world could you know, muster logic and metaphor to explain their views just as much as the, the modern uh, cultic forms of uh, climatism do today. But but we, we're Christians, and we have the two circles. We have that foundational, all-important distinction between creator, the big circle, and creation, that, that small circle. And finally, when he draw his little picture, uh, Vanto would have a, a line coming down from the big circle to the small circle to signify that God has revealed himself to us. Now, God doesn't tell us everything, but he does tell us some things. We're made in his image, and we're able to understand his word. God is uh, certainly noble in one sense, uh, yet at the same time, he's also incomprehensible. Well, we just sang about that a little bit. A mortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Psalm 145 says his greatness is unsearchable. And the famous uh, closing of Romans 11, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And yet, uh, we're so responsible for what God uh, has revealed to us. In Second Peter 1, it's through the knowledge of him uh, who called us that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in other New Testament passages, uh, knowing God, the knowledge of God, it's a new covenant promise in Hebrews, and uh, knowing God is connected to eternal life. It's connected to, to loving each other. Uh, so there are revealed truths with which we have absolute certainty. And there are also mysteries that depress the limits of what we're able to know and comprehend as finite, even, even fallible creatures. With those mysteries, it can actually take wisdom uh, to know how much to pursue greater understanding with study and prayer, and how much to simply accept that there are some things we don't really know, especially the side of heaven. Uh, for example, uh, what do we do when we run into some of the, the tragedies of life, like uh, losing a job or getting a scary diagnosis from the doctor or encountering unbelief in, in a loved one. Uh, it could be immeasurably comforting to know that God has a purpose behind even those events. Um, Roman, Romans 8.28, a beloved verse. Uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But uh, I used to have a, a friend, and she would, she would rack her brain 
until she could come up with, with a theory for why God would do this or that or allow this or that in her life. Uh, she just wouldn't get up until she, she knew what that purpose was. But in this life, and even beyond that, we simply might not know every single detail of God's good purposes in ordaining tragic events. Uh, there is a purpose, but we might not be able to figure out all the reasons for what God is doing. Job, for example, after all 42 chapters of Job, he never even got his questions answered. Instead, he repented and concluded, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, wonderful for me which I did not know. Uh, Martin Luther uh, even wrote about this fixation on uh, divining incomprehensible mysteries as uh, he described it as those who would pull up God's skirt and see what is otherwise hidden. One of these mysteries about which we only know so much is that the topic of kind of before the beginning, as much as our minds could even understand that. In uh, Confessions, Augustine said that he knew a Bible teacher uh, that was asked a tough question about uh, what was God doing before he made heaven and earth. Uh, the teacher's kind of half-joking, uh, facetious way to dodge that question was to say that uh, he was preparing hell for those who pry into mysteries. Yet, at the same time, we have multiple books of the Bible in which the inspired author uses their introduction to, to give us glimpses uh, into that before the beginning era, before Genesis 1-1, uh, back when there was only just that one circle, back when there was only God and not yet any creation. Uh, unlike all of creation that had a starting point, God had no beginning, but has always existed in eternity past. Psalm 90, which is about the passage of time in human life, uh, it begins with the praise, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God, who is unchanging, uh, has also been eternally triune. Uh, second person of the Trinity, the Son, uh, we know he was involved with 100% of creation and was therefore himself uh, uncreated as well. John 1.3, without him was not anything made that was made. We know that uh, God did not uh, create the universe or man beca uh, because he was bored or, or lonely. Instead, we know that God the Father and God the Son were vibrantly in, a, in an intimate and loving relationship in this eternity past. In the opening verses of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And that with God, it, it uh, shows that relationship. And even more, uh, when the translation of verse 18 says that God the Son is at the Father's side, probably know that literally that's in the bosom of the Father. That uh, it's inter-Trinitarian bosom bodies in, in eternity past. And further, it's, it's good to be God. It's good to know God. And it's good uh, to love God. When Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he recalled the glory that I had with you before the world existed, 17.5. And he recalled, you love me before the foundation of the world, John 17.24. One thing that makes God God is that he can do whatever he wants. In contrast to the inert, man-made uh, idols of gold and silver, Psalm 115 proclaims, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. 
And this is certainly true when the triune God is not yet initiated, that creation of Genesis 1-1. And one choice that God made was to create the universe instead of creating nothing at all. That's one thing we could be thankful for. Uh, You could make the conjecture that by making the heavens and earth and mankind, uh, God would now have an opportunity to put his glory on display in the gracious salvation of believers and uh, the righteous judgment of sinners, but God wasn't obligated to give us life. Uh, Despite the existence of suffering, uh, our existence and and our life, it's a gracious gift. But uh, right now I'm going to step back, and uh, this is where we need to to issue a warning uh, about these kinds of things. Uh, Because this, uh, this divine decision to create all things, uh, it's, you could say it's the most pivotal event conceivable in the history of the universe, uh, perhaps the, the cross as well, and also consequently contentious uh, when it comes to issues related to God's sovereignty and, and his guidance over the universe and uh, the universe that he created. And this is especially true when it gets to issues like the existence of suffering called theodicy, or when it comes to God's sovereignty over an individual's salvation. Now, with a bit of a measured understatement, uh, J.I. Packer wrote, uh, the doctrine of election, like every truth about God, involves mystery and sometimes stirs controversy. I've, uh, I've heard stories about how uh, this issue that uh, sometimes stirs controversy, uh, I've heard stories about how it's, uh, causes ch- it's caused churches to split. I've heard stories of uh, churches preaching through Romans, but just, oops, they skip over chapter 9 entirely. Uh, I've heard stories of people just storming out of the sanctuary just from, just from reading the text of Romans 9. I also recall that when uh, John Piper was a young seminary student and he wasn't a Calvinism yet, and it made him a little, little frustrated, he took his pen up to his seminary professor and he dropped it. I said, that was me. I did that. <laughs> Not God's sovereignty. And uh, here's my warning. Uh, We have to develop a a vigilant awareness of what kind of assumptions we are carrying with us when we open up and read the Bible. It's a constant thing to think about. Uh, This means that even things that feel like common sense or logic might be dead wrong if our sense of what's common sense is running away with an assumption that's not shared by Scripture. Uh, For example, one person might say that it's common sense that if Jesus was a man, then he wasn't God. But we know he's fully both. He's the God-man because Scripture tells us both, so we believe both. Now, just this week, I had a long conversation with a guy that uh, uh, he said that, you know, even if homosexual activity is condemned in Scripture, to me, it's common sense that homosexual desires are not sinful. Uh, So it's it's easy to go awry with what you think is common sense. Uh, This warning applies even to certain philosopher apologists that are incredibly intelligent and witty and dedicate themselves to a defense of Christianity. Uh, it's possible for even some of those very impressive uh, philosopher apologists to to become enamored with ideas that uh, seem to come with convenient answers to to the tough questions, even when those ideas actually go against Scripture. Uh, Really, all I'm saying with this, you know, bit of a warning is that it's just an appeal to sola scriptura, that the Word of God, being uniquely God-breathed, that's our ultimate standard and must be allowed to correct our thinking and correct our beliefs. Uh, but the first thing we could say about, about this is that it's something that almost everyone agrees with, 
that God is all-knowing, he's omniscient, and one part of this knowledge is that God knows everything that's going to happen in the future. Calvinists, Arminians, they all believe that God knows the future. Uh, He knows everything that will happen. Uh, But there is a fringe group, a a heretical group, you could say, called open theists, that they redefine all-knowing to not include the free will choices of mankind. That means these open theists, uh, every time, to these open theists, every time you've ever made a choice, in a sense, you've surprised God. He wasn't sure about what you would do. Uh, it's, it's a very man-centered definition of free will because it, it elevates man and human choice and autonomy so much, so, so much that our choices must be completely free from any outside influence, even God's knowledge. Uh, they think that, uh, they'd say it's unknowable knowledge. They think that either God has no clue what we're going to do next, either that or we're just some kind of robot puppets without free will anymore. Uh, talk about a, a false dichotomy. Uh, this view that God can't predict our actions, it's, it's obviously unchristian and unbiblical. The psalmist, the psalmist confesses in Psalm 139, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Knowledge of the future is often a, a litmus test to, to make a distinction between fake idols and the true God, especially in the Isaiah 40s chapters. In Isaiah 41, Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Within this kind of a framework, Jesus claimed divinity based on his knowledge of future events. John thirteen nine, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am, or translated, I am he. Or literally, that you may believe that I am. Uh, so the, this heretical error of the, those open theists in rejecting God's foreknowledge. It's a clear and obvious error, but we can still glean some valuable valuable insights from their mistake. First, uh, what motive would they have to diminish God's knowledge so so drastically? The first motive is that theodicy, again, that problem of evil. Uh, They probably think that it gets God off the hook for being responsible for the evil things that people do, because in their view, God had no idea it would even happen. But... uh, we don't want to, you know, defend God in a way that diminishes his glory or, or the clashes with the Bible, especially if it would mean that God couldn't even know that Adam would fall uh, or not in the garden, uh, making the entire gospel some sort of a, a contingency plan B of sorts, a backup plan. A second motive they may have is that uh, they do have this completely different definition of what free will even means. That's why I started with this warning about assumptions. Uh, There's a lot of arguments out there about free will without, and sometimes not even noticing that we don't even have a shared idea of what it might mean uh, by the term. Now let's take those things we learned from that, uh, those heretical open theists, and we could even apply them to the the more common Arminian view that we see. First, uh, the Arminian, they would also be concerned about that, uh, they would be scared that Embracing the sovereignty of God uh, would make God directly responsible for causing the evil and suffering in the world. But let's consider for a moment the Arminian alternative, because these Arminians, their view still believes that God knows everything that's ever going to happen, and he still created that world anyway. The only difference is that if you take away God's sovereignty, then you also take away uh, the ability to have a purpose behind that evil and suffering. We will no longer be able to say with Joseph in Genesis 50, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Instead, the Arminian would have to say, you meant evil against me, but God felt that human choice is so cosmically significant, uh, significant that he uh, set his own divine sovereignty aside, and now we just have to live with the consequences of that. Uh, in the end, that's really not an effective or God-honoring solution to the problem of evil. And secondly, let's also consider this uh, different definition of free will, since it is so pervasive. Uh, pervasive. It might even be you know, the, the default definition of free will we grew up with. You know, the term for it is called a libertarian free will, and uh, all we mean by that, all they mean by that, uh, is that, you know, well, it starts with man, and that's kind of the problem right there. It starts with man. It starts with man as this wholly, entirely autonomous and independent agent that's not controlled by uh, any external influences. You know, a very just uh, secular, worldly, post-enlightenment idea. Right away, this would ring alarm bells because that's some of this one-circle kind of a thinking trying to invade a, our two-circle universe with a creator. If we're creatures made by God, then we're not autonomous. We're not. Uh, but let's follow their logic for a moment to see where they would go with it. They would ask the question, uh, with that choice I just made, would I have been able to make a different choice? And for them, if the answer to that is no, then they would say that, oh, I'm not free. I'm that robot puppet again. And they would say that they're not allowed to be held responsible for their actions. That would be unfair. And well, that uh, kind of escalated quickly, but, but that's this ubiquitous assumption that, uh, that we see about free will. Uh, it's so common for people to assume that if, if God would be sovereign over history, then it would be unfair for God to judge us. The problem is that that's not what we find in Scripture. Let's uh, consider Judas as a quick example. Uh, his betrayal of our Lord, it was absolutely preordained by God. The betrayal was prophesied uh, by Zechariah. You know, so they weighed for my hire 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11. And Jesus himself said, The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's John uh, 13, 18. Jesus even told him to go and, and do it quickly. Yet, despite God's sovereignty over Judas's sin, God will still hold Judas responsible. And speaking of that punishment, uh, Jesus himself called Judas the son of destruction, or in some translations, the son of perdition, in uh, John seventeen twelve. Uh, and as many of us uh, recall when we've gone over uh, this concept, another significant example of this is in Peter's uh, preaching in Acts 2. Uh, once again, we see both God's sovereignty and moral judgment. Uh, scripture shows us both of those. Uh, th- uh, Acts 2, 22. Three, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, the part about the foreknowledge, it disproves the open theist position, and the part about the definite plan of God disproves the typical Arminian position. Uh, so as Christians, we need to conform our assumptions and recalibrate our, our common sense to what Scripture teaches us. Uh, just like how Scripture teaches us that the incarnate Christ is entirely divine and also entirely human, uh, so we believe both things, we also need to take in everything the Bible says about God's sovereignty uh, and our 
real moral accountability to him. So this means we, we reject that you know, stealth assumption that, that man is absolutely autonomous. And when we do, God's sovereignty and our moral accountability uh, before God, they're no longer incompatible, but are compatible, be, because Scripture teaches us both. And, and that's a term, theological term for it, compatibilism. But they're, we believe they're compatible together because we see both in Scripture. God is the king over history, and I will still be judged by God for what I do. Uh, those two sides are compatible. It's both are scriptural. And before I realized uh, this uh, reformed concept of compatibilism, I was almost trying to be schizophrenic and take in the, the best of Arminianism and Calvinism as I saw it. Uh, uh, I would, uh, as a new Christian, I would tell people that, oh, Calvinism with its sovereignty, that's good for prayer, and Arminianism with its personal responsibility, and maybe that's good for evangelism. But one day a fellow college student asked me uh, why that was the case, and I realized I didn't even know how to answer that question and needed to study it more. And, and when I did study more precisely about uh, what these both sides believe, I realized that the Reformed position of compatibilism is, is doing both, is trying to take in everything Scripture says. And that's when I started leaning towards uh, a Reformed theology. It's a, it's a, that compatibilism being scriptural did believe both tr- truths, and it was that Arminian position that only believed one side of that, having rejected what the Bible says about a robust view of God's sovereignty. So let's go back to that before the beginning of creation. This eternally existent, uncreated, triune God is in glorious, loving, and fulfilling relationship with himself. And this God decided to create the universe. Uh, to, us, to us, God is incomprehensible, but God is not incomprehensible to himself. God also uh, naturally and inherently knows not just about himself, but just anything that can happen, and that uh, wisdom can inform what he wanted to do with creation. Uh, this omniscience, this all-knowingness, uh, yeah, it, it informed what, what kind of world and what kind of history he would want to create and guide. Uh, he would be uh, in control of the world and, and of every aspect of history because he would directly create everything from, from the laws of physics to how tall King Saul would be or uh, to uh, every bit of uh, you and me. And, and this really bears out in Scripture, uh, even uh, things like uh, the decisions of an evil king can be guided by the hand of the Lord or even uh, the, dis- the results of a lot, which is almost equivalent to rolling dice. Uh, every little bit is uh, under- in that smaller circle underneath the control of our creator. I might not know why God created a world uh, and a history that might include some of those tragedies of life that that come our way. Uh, But I can trust that God did indeed plan, orchestrate, create, and and oversee the best of all possible worlds. This this creative decision on uh, what to create and uh, what to unleash for every moment of the history of the universe, uh, you could call it the decree, like uh, decree with a capital D, the decree. And this isn't just philosophical speculation. 
uh, God tells us a, a little bit about this decree in, in one of its uh, informative glimpses into that before the beginning era. Uh, probably, I guess, it's Ephesians 1.11 that, that tells us that, that God's decree includes this intentional, uh, purposeful direction over, over absolutely all things. And God's sovereignty over our salvation is, is just one aspect of the all things that, that God directs as he wills. Uh, 1.11 says, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's decree, that hidden counsel of his will, uh, that's what influences God to uh, predestine and actively work in all things in world history. Now, so it's really almost redundant to inquire about God's sovereignty over salvation uh, when we see that God is sovereign over all things. But nevertheless, let's look at the context, uh, the soteriological context that leads up to verse 11. Uh, uh, first, we'll read through it, starting in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood and the uh, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." Uh, the, the opening verses of Ephesians don't have many names in them, and it's possible that there's a connection that this is not a letter to the Laodiceans mentioned in Colossians 4.16. So it's, it's possible that this epistle was intended to, to be a circular letter that would be passed uh, around amongst uh, various local churches. The introductory bless, uh, blessing here picks up in verse 3 that we read. Uh, verse 3 is, Blessed, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So one important thing to emphasize is the, the in Christ, that, uh, that it's in Christ that we have every conceivable spiritual blessing. By faith, uh, we're in Christ, and uh, this in Christ emphasis that uh, Paul loves so much in his epistles, it's repeated several times in this passage. And it's, it's even described as uh, in the beloved, in the beloved one in verse 6. Instead of just in Christ, it's uh, in this beloved one. And probably recall that in chapter 2, uh, the believer that's in Christ is seated in the heavenly places with Christ. This gives a, a powerful stamp of, of certainty to our salvation. If it's, if it's this done deal in heaven, if we're seated with him in heaven, these spiritual blessings are sealed and certain for us. But it's also worth thinking about who is this us? 
because uh, the us, it, it's definitely not talking about just all of mankind and everybody everywhere. Uh, this is talking about us, belie- us believers specifically. Uh, now, I love that our church is, is named after grace. Verse 6 talks about that, that glorious grace with which he has graced us, you could almost say. That word translated bless in verse 6, it's, it's the same word grace again. Uh, he graced us with his grace. Uh, but this is, is a problem for the historic Arminian that would try to wriggle out of God's freedom to save. This is because uh, they would need God's grace to be kind of watered down and spread out equally to all people everywhere. Uh, they call it, you probably heard the term, prevenient grace. But what is that prevenient grace idea? By the way, it's, it's not in the Bible at all, uh, for starters even though their entire system absolutely depends on it. Anyway, the idea behind this prevenient grace that they have, it's that what the death of Christ did is it it spread this grace around everywhere just enough to kind of undo our deadness and sin, enough to, to give us the ability to respond positively to the gospel. That's why the rabbit Arminian John Wesley uh, he said that he once came within a hair's breadth of embracing Calvinism. And why is that? That's because technically the historical Arminians, in a sense, they believed in total depravity. But then that total, de- total depravity got corrected by also believing that it was partially fixed by this idea of prevenient grace. And that leads to the difference between God saving a man and God making men save a bull. It's a difference between the monergism, where God is the one worker that saves, and synergism, where we have a, a partnership with God's grace to be saved. So both sides like grace, but is grace sufficient? This text in Ephesians 1, it doesn't leave any room for us contributing to the salvation. So if we ask then, what is the difference between the believer here and the unbeliever here? The Arminian has to say that the decisive difference is that he had a better response to the gospel. Both men got equally cured with this prevenient grace theory, so only that believer successfully took advantage of that opportunity. But the biblical answer is that both men were dead in sin, and it was God that made the difference in the believer by gracing him with the glorious grace. The text tells us that uh, with this before-the-beginning era, God chose or uh, elected some people to be the reciprocants of this saving grace. Starting in uh, verse 4 there, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And verse 5, in love. Now, it's it's, it's a big run-on sentence, so it's hard to know if the in love goes to the previous sentence or the next one, but... I think this is a good translation. In love, he predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. It really is an adoption in love. If you think about this is God seeing a rebel sinner that has enmity with God and chooses to remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That is not something that we helped or contribute to. Uh, So we can ask the question... uh, are repentance and faith pleasing to God? Well, of course, repentance and faith are pleasing to God. 
And that's why we need to remember that, you know, Romans 8 taught us. Though, uh, Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not my humble faith that activates salvation. The sinner isn't capable of mustering that. He hates God too much. Uh, instead, it's the resurrecting, regenerative, gracious act of God. That's what activates my faith. So are you familiar with uh, that uh, choice meat debacle? I don't know if you have heard that quote. There's a particular SBC pastor in Texas that's infamous for constantly arguing against Calvinism. Uh, he defined election in a way that was, it was shocking about how transparent it was about the believer's superiority uh, to the unbeliever. And I'll, I'll read his quote here. He says, uh, when we ask about election, we're talking about mainly God having favor, him choosing somebody over someone else. Matter of fact, when we use the word choice, uh, a lot of times we're thinking of uh, kind of the verb form of it, like, I made a choice between these two options. But if you go into the grocery store later today, and if you go to the choice meat section, the word choice there is used more of an adjective. It's describing the type of meat. It's the type of meat that is favorable over the other lesser favorable meat. And so uh, when you talk about something that is choice, you are not always talking about necessarily God choosing something for no apparent reason, but you're choosing that meat because it's favorable meat. Uh, there's a reason to have the choice of that meat. That's a little shocking, isn't it, if you compare the metaphor now, I'm, I'm Facebook friends with the pastor that said that, so uh, I won't embarrass him by saying his name. Uh, but the shock value there is informative. When you reject God's gracious, sovereign freedom over salvation, you end up you having, then you have a cause to boast. But in Romans, Paul made it abundantly clear that a cause for boasting is antithetical to the gospel. Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Now, this text we looked at in Ephesians 1, it makes it quite clear as well. He chose some to be grace with grace before time began, according to the purpose of his will. And where did that credit go? Verse 6 reminds us, to the praise of his glorious grace. And that entire uh, uh, phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace, it's a, well, th th this whole passage, like I said, is a huge run-on sentence. But that phrase in particular seems to just jump out as almost being a parenthetical insertion. Uh, the passage would make perfect grammatical sense, uh, maybe even more, maybe it would even flow better if it didn't have those words. But Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, it felt it appropriate to jump in there with that beautiful insertion of, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. That his boasting, not my own. And that because of this decree, uh, God's planning and predestining uh, his purposes across all of history that means that the idea of God so loved the world is actually older than the world. First Peter 1 gives us a, a glimpse at this before the beginning era, revealing that Christ had volunteered to come and die and save even before Genesis 1-1 happened. And it's only now in this new covenant era that we know about this aspect of God's secret design for history that, that he's had this whole time. Starting in 119 of First Peter, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Similarly, in Revelation 13, John conveys the imagery that even before the world was made, the the imagery of a, a book with the names of the elect written down in it. Now, you might notice a slight translation difference from the King James and NIV, but it's, again, I think the ESV has it right here. Uh, Revelation thirteen five, The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Then to verse 8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Uh, everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, at this point, you're probably uh, picked up that... Uh, I'm talking about this uh, second of the five points of Calvinism. It's called uh, unconditional election, which is that that you and the tulip acrostic. Uh, You see that what I wanted to do was start with God in the scripture instead of starting with uh, just the the definition of the religious creed. One reason for this is that, really, if you started talking to Calvin about tulip, it would have had no idea what you're talking about. Because these five points of Calvinism are uh, aren't necessarily things the reformers came up with as biblical as they were. Uh, instead, really, these, these are five points that Jacob Arminius and his followers, they, des- uh, they decided to stop believing these in 1610, uh, rejecting things like the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. Though in response, uh, the, the Synod of Dort was a series of 180 uh, sober meetings over seven or eight months to deliberate over this new controversy. And they decided not just to completely agree with Arminius, but also just write out these five points in response to the five things that Arminius and his followers stopped believing. And that's where the the five points came from. However, ironically, if you fast forward 400 years into the future, that Arminian view that was uh, so uh, purposely uh, completely rejected became the majority view in Protestantism now, essentially uh, agreeing with Rome. Uh, it's perhaps even the default view now. Many of us grew up with this non-reformed uh, soteriologies uh, because we didn't know anything but this uh, Arminian default. Uh, but, but once you discover it, uh, praise God, you see it everywhere. Now, when Pastor Wayne took us through John, God's freedom to save was everywhere. Now, if you wanted to uh, take a Sharpie and block out all of the Calvinism from the Gospel of John, it would, it would look like one of those heavily redacted FBI documents it has very left, little left on the page to read. Now, let's take a, a quick tour of, of John's gospel and, uh, that, uh, and see what Jesus himself has to say about the divine decree and, and about our salvation. Now, you probably would have expected me to go straight into Romans 9 to demonstrate unconditional election because that's what the chapter's about. Now, John Piper said about Romans 9, uh, that uh, the chapter was a tiger going about devouring free willers like me when he was first encountering the controversy. But it's sometimes eye-opening to see the doctrines of grace directly from our Lord. Though we end up seeing that the election of those who will end up repenting and believing unto salvation, we end up seeing that the selection of this group is it's an inter-Trinitarian transaction. It doesn't have anything to do with us at all. The typical interpretive ploy of Arminians is to appeal to God looking down the corridors of time to see who is going to have faith, and they're the elect, uh, to see who that choice meet is and to choose them. Uh, But that's not what we see, uh, what we will see in the texts. Uh, It's almost like a contract between father and son, and 
that contract has no conditions dealing with what you or I do at all. It's uh, that unconditional election. It's, uh, in the Civil War, the, uh, when the North really needed some good press and General Grant won some victories, they started giving him the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant. That's uh, it's kind of similar in World War II. Uh, all of the politics behind Oppenheimer and the nuclear bomb and trying to force Japan to surrender unconditionally. Uh, they could have uh, conceded one little condition and just let that emperor of Japan continue on as he was, but they insisted that he renounce his divinity over the radio. Kind of the same way, Arminians would want us to carve out some little conditions so that we can be choice meat, so that we can respond in humble repentance and faith, uh, that we take credit for being that choice meat, but the scripture does not allow uh, any such thing. In John 5, Jesus had just created a commotion by healing on the Sabbath and also making statements that uh, set him on par with the Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus continued, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And this is what I'm going to focus on. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, when the father raises the dead, he doesn't have the least bit of partnership. Uh, that, that dead guy isn't in a partnership or uh, uh, helping out God in the resurrection. In the exact same way, you know, so also the son, uh, Jesus has the freedom to grant life as he desires. The son gives life to whom he will. It's similar to chapter 3 of John, where the wind of the Spirit blows where it wishes. And now in this chapter, the Son grants life as he wishes. It's a parallel passage with Matthew 11, uh, right after uh, Jesus is praying to the Father. And in that prayer, he actually worships God for electing some to be saved and not electing others to be saved. Jesus, Jesus prayed in 11.25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Then uh, after that, verse 27, comes that parallel statement. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, here, once again, the only way to know God is if the Son chooses to show God to you. Armenian exegetes uh, end up being very convoluted in the following chapter, John 6. It teaches this clearly. Uh, let's start with verse 37, 637. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, will ne- uh, I will never cast out. So uh, let's look at verse 37. What's the order of events in this verse? Is it the people coming to faith first, or people being given by the Father first? It's the latter. Uh, in, this, in this verse, people come to faith in Christ only because they've already been given to Christ by the Father. This entire chapter is talking about this same group that's been given uh, to the Son by the Father. A lot of the, uh, if you ever see Arminians try to go through this chapter and try to explain it, they kind of twist themselves into interpretive pretzels trying to avoid this uh, clear teaching. They, They do verses out of order to obscure what it's saying. But in the text, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's essentially the Arminian needs to twist it into all who give themselves to me will come to me. And, uh, but this text eliminates any possibility of God looking down the corridors of time for the choice meat of faith because 
It's that giving of the Father that grants faith in Christ, the gift of faith. Uh, the only precondition, it's restated if you go down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It, uh, it doesn't work to say that he anticipated this faith as a precondition because the exclusive precondition right there for determining who will be saved is having been given by the Father to the Son. Uh, he states it one more time uh, that towards the end of the chapter, verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to, the, to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Faith isn't what initiates the divine grace. It's the divine grace that initiates the faith. We, see, we saw the same thing in Acts in 13.48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Same thing in Acts 16.14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So continuing on with our quick tour of John. Chapter 8, Jesus had just accused some Jews as being children of Satan. And uh, he introduces uh, a question in verse 46. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And Jesus goes on to, to answer his own question. And his answer is, is backwards from what the Arminian would say. In verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Okay, so what's this reason why they don't hear the words of God? Jesus says, the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, the, again, that Arminian would need to reverse that and say, you're not of God because you do not hear God's words. But, but Jesus said, you do not hear God's words because you are not already of God. Once again, it is that uh, it's the divine impetus of grace that allows for the proper response of faith to hearing God's word. We see the same reasoning in chapter 10 with the good shepherd and the sheep. Here, the, the, so there's some obstinate unbelievers, and they're, for, for whatever reason, they're asking Jesus, uh, tell us plainly if you're the Christ, uh, as if he had already been doing that the whole time. Uh, once again, Jesus uh, concludes in, in verse 26, 1026, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So there we see again that it's not the faith that causes the election or uh, makes you look like the choice meat. Uh, it is the election that causes the faith. And of course, part of what's confusing about that is that we don't know who the elect are. We have no way of knowing who the elect are, and that's why we preach the gospel to all men. And then those other sheep will hear his voice. Uh, that faith is the evidence of election, uh, not the, the choice meat basis for it. And Lastly, let's also really focus a bit on John 17, be the beautiful high priestly prayer chapter, uh, the prayer of our Savior. Jesus had finished his public ministry, and uh, he finished his more intimate last supper with his disciples, and perhaps it's possible that he you know, stopped to pray here uh, in seeing the, the Passover blood flowing down the waters of the uh, Kidron Brook. And once again, we get a very special glimpse at the son praying to the father. Uh, so he said that it was time, that hour had come. So let's just start with reading the, the first verse here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Now the hour has come. After years of ministry, now the cross was coming. And that's the primary context here for, for the rest of verse one. Uh, the rest of verse one, we see this double request. Uh, he would ask first that himself, the son would be glorified, and then consequently, 
he would in turn ask to glorify the Father. So let's start with this first request. Glorify your son. Now ultimately, again, we're, we're talking about the cross and the resurrection here. Now there, there were numerous minor ways in which the son was glorified. The soldiers fell to the ground at the words of I am. Pilate found nothing wrong with him. His frightened wife called him righteous. Uh, one of the thieves on the cross uh, uh, confessed faith in him. And, and he died on the cross, as 13.1 says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But ultimately, let's consider the, the resurrection. The son said, it is finished, and on an Easter, the father affirmed this by raising a son from the dead. And that's what could lead to the second request, that the son may glorify you. So what is this, that the son may glorify you? The Son glorified the Father by having accomplished His mission to redeem a people from their sins. Now we're ready to also look at at verse 2 here. Here we see two gifts that the Father gave to the Son. Since you have been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given Him. Now the ending of Matthew uh, goes into more detail about this first gift. Uh, that the Father has given all authority to the Son. But uh, we, should, we must note that the scope of these two gifts are, are different. Uh, one, and it's this large group of everyone, authority over all flesh. And the second is a specific group. Uh, that second gift to the Son, uh, it's, it's a specific group of people, all whom you have given him. So the Son could utilize that first gift, authority over all flesh, in order to accomplish that glorification for his Father. The Son could utilize that authority over all flesh to grant eternal life to this specific group of people. This specific group of people, it's the elect, that same group we've been seeing since chapter 6, all whom you have given him. And we see this distinction throughout the rest of the chapter. Uh, all of those, uh, all of those in the, uh, out of all of those in the world, Jesus is doing something specifically for the elect. In verse 2, we saw that he gives this group eternal life. In verse 6, he reveals a father to the elect. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In verse 9, he is the high priest that prays for the elect. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in verse 24, He grants him entrance into heaven. I desire, and and he's praying to the Father, and the Father's going to answer the prayers of the Son. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And I guess ironically, there's no time for Romans 9, but I guess that means that we just have to pray for Pastor Wayne to do a whole series through through Romans someday. And we'll come back to it. J.I. Packer uh, succinctly suggests Uh, some application from Scripture about election. Uh, He says, in Scripture, uh, it is a pastoral doctrine uh, brought in to help Christians see how great is the grace that saves them and to move them to humility, confidence, joy, praise, faithfulness, and holiness in response. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have saved us. And I pray that uh, you would allow us to 
love your glory. And I pray that we would be a church that is willing to make much of you uh, instead of entertaining men. I pray that we would love the gospel and love for the Son and the Father to be glorified. And I pray that you, by your Spirit, would do these things that we listed. Uh, Give us joy. Uh, Give us humility. Uh, Let us tremble before the awesome God that created the universe. And let us uh, be loved by the God that sent his Son to die for us. So we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's all stand. We'll turn to 582 in our hymnals. Thank you, Lord. 582. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.